27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And ask, who is your father? Not your, like, er, like. You would hear them say, Abraham. And if you were to go to a Muslim mosque, many nearby, and ask them, who is the father of your people? They would also say, Abraham. If you were to go to, is this on? Is this working? Okay. It's, it's just going through here? Okay. All right. And if you go to a Christian church and you ask them, what's the father of your people? They would say, Abraham. Now, that's over half the population of the entire earth. So it's a pretty big deal if half the population calls Abraham their daddy, you know, of their background, their ancestry is rooted in Abraham. So if you don't get Abraham, you don't really get so much of who you are and where we're from. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is still part of your story because we're going back to the book of Genesis, which is rooted, giving us the roots of all of humanity. And if you don't understand the the roots of humanity, you're not going to understand the deep problems. So you're going to misdiagnose the greatest problems of the world. You're also going to misdiagnose the solution. So you're going to be spinning your wheels. So this is your story as much as it is my story. And though I'm Korean-American, my father is Abraham. Sounds weird, huh? My father is a Jewish guy from this land that we're going to hear about. And so no matter where you come from, your faith background, or if you're a believer or not, this is actually utterly important to you because this is your history. This is your roots. And we have to rehearse it over and over again, church, even if it feels familiar, because this is our destiny, not only our past, but our present. It shapes our present and it shapes our future. And if we have confusion over any one of those areas, we're going to have deep confusion about our purpose and why we're here. But before we can get to Genesis 11 and 12 and understand who Abraham is, we got to do a quick recap of the story we've been in because we did Genesis chapter 1 through 12, and then we took a break preaching through the letters of John, 
and now we're back to finish the second third of Genesis. Let me remind you briefly, God, the uncreated one, the only one in this category, no one else is like him in a triune way, very mysterious for us, but normal for him, enjoyed this loving relationship and overflowed, not out of loneliness, but out of joy and delight into this world, created this world out of nothing with just the words of his mouth. It wasn't hard. He did it with his words and created this world. All this goodness of this world he created and he called it good and he created man to be like him, mankind, to be unique among all creatures, all those who take breath, have the breath of life, but uniquely humans have a unique way to bear his image, which we're not going to get into today, but we have like 15 times before that humans uniquely have a relationship with God like no other creature. Humans share in his work. He invites mankind to rule with him, not just to be ruled by him, but to rule with him and to know him in a way that no one else knows and to be walking statues of what he's like. And so if you look at a human when who's accurately bearing the image of God, you can say, well, that's what God's like because of that person, the way they relate with people, the way they do life. And so that was the original design of the world where man was supposed to bask in his glory, in God's glory and actually see him face to face. That was the original design for God and man to actually have face-to-face communion relationship. And so if you ask yourself, why is God invisible? Why can't we see him? Why does he so far? Well, it originally was not supposed to be that way. But what happens, as many of us know, sin happened. Man decided, decided, I want to call my own shots. I, I don't like to have an authority. I like a blesser. I would like you to do things for me, but I want to call the shots in my own life. And man, when he rejected God's authority, he rejected the very purpose and reason why he existed. And so it was almost like the sun was, uh, the, the very core of the earth was ripped out of the inside of the earth. And so now the earth is starting to fall in on itself, just as our hearts are starting to fall in ourselves. And so ever since that original rebellion, every man and woman has been born with a heart that is inwardly bent that is allergic towards the idea of any form of authority, especially God who created them. Though he is worthy of their worship and love, our hearts are born with a heart that's bent towards it. And when you have a heart that's bent towards away from the one that you exist for and the one you were created for, then you're going to start doing all kinds of things that are not like God. And mankind increasingly falls downward Theologians call this moment the fall, but the results, many theologians call the spiral downward. From Genesis 3 to 11, we see that man is increasingly more and more brutal and wicked and selfish. The first brothers, one, the older, murders his younger brother. Shortly later, we see that every thought of man's heart was continually evil, and so God wipes out the entire world except eight people. And yet those eight people... Though they were spared from that watery grave and judgment, the problem was that their hearts still carried the sin of Adam in their heart, a heart that was still bent against God. And so Noah's, Noah, him, his chosen family, they immediately fall themselves. So we see a second fall. And then after some time, we see man start to rebuild And what do they do? They say, you know what? We're not going to spread God's glory and his image. In fact, let's not spread around. Because the original call was to take Eden, the beauty and the goodness 
an order of Eden and spread it throughout the whole world. And what man said is instead of spreading it like God tells us to, let's centralize and make a name great for ourselves. See, because the great consequence of the fall was not just sin or hurricanes or cancer or death. Those are all real bad and real. But the greatest consequence was separation from God. Heaven and earth no longer kissed. They were separated in some way. So man lost the tangible presence, face-to-face presence of God. And what is Babel doing? In Genesis chapter 11, man comes together and says, Hey, you know what? Let's get to God on our own terms. We don't need to spread out. We can centralize. Instead of, uh, of doing and following God, let's build a building that makes, reflects how great we are. And let's reach the heavens. Let's separate this gap. Let's reunite this gap on our way and our terms. And so they misdiagnose the greatest problem because they don't address their sin, their rebellious hearts, and they try to find it their own way. And so then we find ourselves in Genesis eleven twenty-seven. And before I say that, God in his mercy, because man increasingly was multiplying their evil and their brutality and their wickedness and their selfishness. God mercifully separates them because if they stayed together, they would only multiply and get more and more wicked. So God spreads out the nations. And so as we look into this room, I don't look like most of you. Many of you look different from each other. This is the result of Genesis 11. All the nations were, the peoples of the world were scattered throughout the world, start to develop their own cultures, but it all came from right here in Genesis chapter 11. And so now we see that there was a promise though, despite all of this. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3, there was a, a sweet promise that God gave. He said, Eve, there will be one who comes from your line. It will, he will be the serpent crusher. He will be the redeemer. He's going to make all things new. Everything sad will come untrue one day because of this baby that will come from your line. And so every generation who hoped in Yahweh, who trusted and loved God, was looking for this seed. Will it be this generation? Will will you be the mom of that child? And everyone's looking for this promised child to come from Eve's line. And eventually Noah, and then Seth's line, and then now we see in Genesis 11, 27, God maintained and preserved that line and then we see verse 27. All right, would you look? Uh, it's on the screens. Shouldn't be, but it is because I made a mistake. Now, these are the generations of Terah. And I say it's, it shouldn't be because I want you to know your Bibles, as we've said. We want you to be comfortable with looking at your Bible and not depending on a screen, but to know your Bible well so that you go to the source and you're not dependent on me or the other pastors because we're not the source. Now, these are generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram, Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife, Abram's wife was Sarah, or Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife is Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, I know, I know probably more than half of you just like checked out and glazed over and thought about lunch or something like that. But what we see in Genesis is something that's really important but difficult for us in the West because we don't really keep genealogies. Right now we have a big burst of interest in Ancestry.com and things like that and what's, who's your background, who's your daddy, all that kind of stuff, which is interesting and good. But in this culture, family line is everything. And Genesis was written by Moses 
and was divided in generations. Whenever you see these are the generations in Genesis, in Hebrew that's called a toledot, it's a way that Moses is introducing and organizing the book. So if you're like, why are we starting in Genesis 11:27? That is the most weird place to start. So unrelevant. Well, that's how actually Moses organized the book. So we're going to honor that because there's good reason behind it. Because if you don't understand Abraham's family line and background, you're not going to understand the gravity of what God is doing with Abraham. It's also a reminder that despite all the brokenness and evil of the world, God is preserving his line that he will use to redeem the world. And if you can preserve a line, guess what? You are preserving billions of little details to make that happen. To ensure someone to be born and to live and to thrive and to pass that down to the next generation, billions of details have to happen. God is sovereign in maintaining his line. Now, we're going to focus on this guy named Terah. Many of you guys have not thought about Terah, but very important. It says that Terah and his family are from the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans is most likely, there's some debate, but most likely the land of Babylon. Okay, so modern day Iraq. And also maybe the, the kind of birthplace of Babel, the heart of Babel. And Terah's family is likely hugely religious. This area, Ur of the Chaldeans, excavations show that it was the, one of the central worship centers of the moon goddess Nana. Which is also the name that my kids call my, their grandma, Nana. <laughs> So just think about that next time you call your grandma Nana. Moon goddess. And also excavations show that there was a, a lot of evidence that there was human sacrifices there. So this is the, the land that Abraham is from, his family is from. And you don't need a scholarly book to tell you that's what's happening. Look at Joshua 24. Remember, the Bible helps us interpret the Bible. Joshua 24. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says Yahweh, remember the Lord in all caps in the Old Testament is always Yahweh, the God of Israel. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. This is really important because when you think about Abraham, you think about this righteous, good dude who is just this holy guy, but his family was full of idol worshipers. This is supposed to be the promised line from Eve, from Seth, carrying on the promised redeemer is supposed to come from them, and they have forgotten Yahweh. They are worshiping other gods. This is the context Abraham is called from, a family full of idol, worship, idol worshipers who forgot who they are serving and who they come from and their story. So now let's look at Genesis 12, verse 30. Or 11 verse 30. It'll be on the screen. It's really important. Random detail. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Why did he include that? Barren? Remember the promised redeemer who's going to make all sad things untrue. Who's going to redeem this world. Is supposed to come from this line. And so the fact that Sarai is barren means game over, promise dead. You can't have a promise line when your chief matriarch is barren. So what are we going to do here? And in contrast to Abraham's brother, uh, Abraham, his brother Nahor is married to Milcah. 
And if you want to quickly glance over to this, Genesis 22.20. You could just look at there on your own or write it if you're taking notes. Genesis 22.20-23, it shares that she had eight children. Eight children. So here's Abraham, or Abram at this time. His wife Sarai has no children. And his brother Nahor and Milcah have eight. You feel that tension? Feel the contrast? Maybe you can imagine this pain, or maybe you are living it right now and you don't have to imagine it. The pain of seeing a close loved one receive that which you long for and you've been praying for. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's finally kicking that ailment that has been plaguing you for years. Or maybe it's a child like the situation. And you're asking yourself questions like, why God? Why not me? Why them? Is there something I've done? Something they're doing that I'm not doing? Or maybe self-righteously you're saying to yourself, but I'm even more faithful than them, God. Why would you bless them? Look at what I've done for you. All the sacrifices I've made. You owe me, don't, don't you, God? Is this how you repay me? But we see that no matter what heart you come from, whether it's cynicism or jealousy or just outright pain and confusion, God has good plans for Abraham and his wife, and he has good plans for you. We'll talk about that more and more. Now let's look at verse 31 as this genealogy continues. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abraham's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So they're on their way to Canaan, but they stopped their journey. And then verse 32 just ends Terah's life. So Terah wants to go to the land, but he settles in Haran, which is modern-day Turkey. So if you got it in your map, in your mind... Babylonish area, Iraq, moving towards Turkey. Okay, so they're in Turkey, probably. And some of you have been in Turkey, and some of you want to go to Turkey to be a light. Just so cool. Now, let's look at this costly call. Now that we kind of understand Abraham's background, Abram's background. I cannot stop saying Abraham. All right. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Now, Yahweh said to Abram, now, real quick, for those who don't know, whenever I say Yahweh, it's God's personal name that is for his people only that reflects the fullness of his heart and his attributes. So it's more, more robust, more precious than just God. Okay? Now, Yahweh said to Abraham, Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. So if you are tracking with this narrative and you've been studying Genesis... The first time, this is the first time God speaks since splitting up the nations, splitting up all the families of the world in Genesis 11 and Tower of Babel. So the last word was judgment on all peoples, and now the next word is blessing for all peoples. And if you notice, Abram doesn't have a ham yet. He's just Abram, and another time we'll see why when he gets upgraded and promoted to Abraham. Now, let's consider this call and consider Abram more because it's essential to feel the gravity of this. Look at this call. The only command here is to go. You see that in verse 1? Go. He doesn't tell him where. He doesn't say, this is the full map of what you're going to do. This is all that's going to. He just says, go. And I'll tell you all the details later on. Here, here's the command, go. And here's the promise. The details don't matter yet. I got those details. You just go. And this is so often the pattern with the Lord with his people. Is it not? He gives us one step at a time. 
But none of us likes that, right? Nobody likes that. I'm going to use a silly illustration that happened recently, and I didn't expect Elijah to be here, but Elijah, I'm going to share a quick story. Recently, Elijah and I went on our, our um, date. We ro- go on our rotation with our kids, going on dates. And on the way home, I handed him my phone and I said, all right, let me teach you how to use Google Maps and navigate us home. So Elijah was navigating us home, and he did a great job. But you know what I wanted? Elijah, tell me the next step and the one after so I can mentally prepare. Because I didn't want to, like, turn right here and then quick left. You know, like, I didn't want to do one of those, right? So I wanted to be mentally prepared for what's coming, and I was insecure. I struggled because I wasn't exactly sure how to get home from that area we're at. Why did I struggle? Well, one, it was his first time using it, and he's 10 years old, right? And most of us don't feel super confident getting navigational details from a 10-year-old, though my 10-year-old is very smart. And though that's a silly illustration, I think you all know where I'm going with this. Isn't this how we feel with the Lord? We want him to tell us the full picture. And in doing so, when we delay obedience because we need to know everything else, we are subtly telling him we do not trust him. We are implying that we do not trust you with the driver's seat. We need to know the full picture before we obey or before we move. Tell me the whole story, then I will obey and trust you. But God rarely works like that. The famous French scholar John Calvin remarked that God was saying in this passage this. This is his paraphrase. Would you read this out loud with me? I command you to go God wants Abram's full heart and trust before he's going to give him all the details of what it looks like. Waiting to understand the whole picture is understandable. It's not, isn't it? But when we refuse to move unless we have the full picture, we're telling God that we don't trust him. We know better. We don't trust his wisdom. We don't trust his heart. We don't trust his competency to take care of our lives like we can because we're so good, right? Maybe there's something terrifying that God is calling you to take steps towards right now. And you are asking for the full picture and he's not giving it. Maybe last week you felt your heart stirred for the unreached people groups as Tony and Emily shared. And as we called you to pray, prayerfully consider the call for unreached people groups. And you want to know the full picture. God's not going to give it to you. And you have to say yes to him. And take steps. See, God is not afraid of your questions, but the problem is, is that when we refuse to move until our questions are answered, that's the problem. So what the call for you is say yes and ask questions while you're moving towards him. You get that? It's very different. It's it's like when I get frustrated at my children, I I tell them to do something because I have all these reasons that they don't know, and they won't move until they know all the reasons. And I'm saying, just move. Trust me, I tell you. And maybe if you are not a follower of Jesus, you feel like you have all these questions and doubts and questions about Christianity and concerns about God, that's good. But if, you, if your bar is that you won't text, take steps towards knowing him and following him unless you know everything, then you will never know everything because he's infinite. And on this side of eternity, we're all going to have plenty of questions. But what you can do is say, you know what, God, I'm going to take steps towards you and ask while I'm walking, while I'm obeying. That's what Abraham is calling to. He doesn't promise that it's going to go well immediately. He doesn't promise it won't be hard. 
or it won't fail in ways. But he promises his peace, his presence, his favor forever. So say yes, church, while you are asking questions. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, say yes and take a step towards him while you're asking earnest questions. Now let's look at this cost a little bit more. Look in your Bibles at Genesis 12, 4 real quick. How old is Abram? Someone shout it out. 75. Anyone here in the rough range of 75? All right, a few, three, four, five, six, seven. Now, imagine 75 year old, God speaking to him, go move to another country you've never been to, and I'm not going to give you any details. Don't think in your mind some college student who has nothing to lose and everything to gain, who has tons of money in the bank, who could just lean back if it all fails, and they fail to be an artist or whatever it is. We're talking about a settled 75-year-old who has dependents, servants, a household, except no biological children, a wife. He's probably pretty set in his ways, in his culture, his comforts, his home. He has his favorite spot in his chair. He's got his favorite store or however they did store in commerce then, he got it made. He knows his life and God is upending it. And just remember, he's coming from a family line of idol worshipers. And yeah, remember he, his wife is barren and probably pretty cynical and saying, whoa, whoa, God, you're speaking to me. You, God is speaking to me. You who withheld children and blessing from me. That's the context. What does Abraham have to leave? Look at your text in verse 2 and 3. There's three things he's calling him to leave. Two so, three social groups that ascend in order of significance. Your country, your people, your father's house. It's important to understand their cultural context. In our Western context, family is important, but it's not important like it was important then. Family in the Western context exists to help each individual reach its goals. In this context, each individual exists to reach the family's goals. Family was everything. You couldn't think of yourself apart from your family. So that's why so often in the Bible, they said, so-and-so, son of blank. Because who you are was intricately connected to who you belong to. Your people group, your family, your, Jew, your, your ethnicity, your country. Yes, many of us are patriotic, patriotic here. Many of us love our country, but you don't love your country like they love their country. I mean, maybe some of you, you know what I mean? But this was deeply connected to who they were. All of their security, their identity, their comfort, their future was all embedded into their family. So imagine God calling you as a 75-year-old to leave your country, your career, your family, your city, for something that no one else has ever done before. There's no roadmap. It's just a command to go and a lot of promises. You can imagine the questions Abraham could think. What if God isn't real? What if I'm just high on some sort of Middle Eastern kind of opioid? Maybe, maybe I'm just... It's hot in the tent. Maybe God isn't trustworthy. Maybe this is some big trap and he's going to mess with my life and he wants to mess with his creation and God is real, but he's, his heart is cruel and he's just going to mess up my life. I mean, you could imagine all these questions. See, Abram 
didn't have the benefit of reading the Bible like we do. He didn't have a history. I grew up in a Korean church as a kid, so we didn't have all these, you know, songs like many of you have. But, you know, Father Abraham. Oh, wow. Look, okay, you guys know, right? The first time I heard that as a daughter, I was like, what is wrong with you people? What is going on here? But some of you grew up with that song, and then eventually at the end, you're just doing weird things, right? Your whole body's into it, right? And so because you know the story, Father Abram had many sons. But Abram hasn't seen that yet. Abraham hasn't heard that song yet. All he has is a promise from this unknown God that his family forgot. He doesn't have the promises of the New Testament and all that comes from it. And so it's very similar for us here when we ask questions like, man, what if my kids don't have friends there? You know, we're going to be church planting, God willing, in the next year or two. And some of you are going to be led by the Spirit to move to other areas. And you're like, but I just got renovated my kitchen. <laughs> I just got comfortable. We found the right friend groups. So if you start putting yourself in that situation, you start to think through like what Abram could feel in a micro level. I don't know if this relates to you here, but some of you, God is calling you out very specifically out of your family's ways. I'm not saying necessarily abandoning your family, but their ways, their worldview, their culture. And God is calling you to something greater, but it's going to be terrifying and deeply painful, but he'll be with you every step of the way. And we as a community will walk with you through that. But for everything God calls Abram to leave, he promises even more. Let's see those promises now. Verse 2. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Number one, great nation. This promise of becoming a great nation is shocking. Who is God talking to? He's talking to a guy who has no kids and who's 75. It's one thing if he's talking to uh, the Duggards. I've never watched that show. But they had 19 kids and counting. You're like, okay, I could see how that could work. You 19 kids all having lots of kids and those kids having kids. But you're talking to a 75-year-old, not in the prime of life, no kids. It's as absurd as talking to to one of you and saying you're going to win the NBA dunk contest next year. You know, like it just doesn't make sense. It's nonsensical. Which is another great point to remember because God's promises are not dependent on our abilities. This is one of the most important points of this passage for God's people. Abraham could theoretically, with his mind and his savvy, become great financially. He could do a lot of great things, make his name great. But what he could not do is make children. That's only something God can do. Even science cannot make that happen. Only God can open and close the womb. So this is absolutely out of his hands, which is such a good thing for us to remember. Because God's calling upon your life is not dependent, dependent on how qualified you are. As many have said, God qualifies the called. He doesn't call the qualified. Abraham was the most unqualified, if you could find a candidate. And yet God qualifies him by his own hand, not by Abraham's cleverness. So, so important for us to remember. It doesn't matter the family line you're from. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed in the past. It doesn't matter how 
uneloquent you are or ungifted you are or untalented you are, if God is calling you, he will qualify you. He will empower you. And as long as you look at your life and look at only what you have, you will always limit the power and the presence and blessing of God because you are limiting him by telling him what you can or cannot do. How about we stop telling God what we can or cannot do and let him tell us what he can and cannot do through us? How many of you have immediately disqualified yourself for unreached people groups and missionary work because you're like, well, I'm just not that kind of person? How dare you? Who made God's, who made your mouth? Who made you? He can do anything through you. Do anything through me. Can, do you know how deeply, I was the most insecure person you had ever met before I met Christ. And then even after Christ, it took so many years. I was so, so absolutely devastatedly beat up about who I was. So insecure about being love, lovable, to being gifted. I so craved and longed for the affirmation of others to tell me who I am. I was so deeply insecure. And because God got this in my heart at 15, 20 years ago, I start to see, well, if you are my God, I can, you can do anything you want. doesn't matter who I am. And that's the same for you. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter your family background. doesn't matter your sin. He can do anything he wants through you if you're willing. All right, number two, shorter, blessing. God has promised blessing. And at first glance, blessing is often associated with finances and good health. And multiplying of kids, right? God bless you. What do we mean by that? But when we see in Genesis, the greatest loss of the fall is God's presence. And what we see is that when you're near God, just like the tabernacle or the the Ark of the Covenant went to Obed-Edom's house, what happened to Obed-Edom's family? They were what? Starts with the B. Blessed. Because they were near God's presence, right? And so the great blessing in the Bible is actually not things but a person. And when you're near that person, blessings can follow. That's often physical, but not only physical. But the real blessing is nearness to him, knowing him. So Abraham's going to be blessed among all people like that. We're going to talk more about that in a second. Number three, your name is great. He promises that his name will be great. Which is interesting because in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, didn't these people just get judged for trying to make their name great? So what we see is that God doesn't have a problem with making your name great, provided it's him doing it, not you doing it. And in a world of self-promotion, this is what we live and drink, this is good for us to remember. Let God promote you, and you just put your head down and be faithful. Let's, let's talk about the purpose, though, because this is super important. Verse 3. Would you read this out loud? I will bless those who bless you. One way that God will bless Abram and his family is that he's going to protect them. And throughout the whole Old Testament, we see this happen. When people bring trouble upon God's people, trouble will fall upon them. But don't make mistake to think that this is a harsh God because, or a cruel God. What is the purpose behind blessing Abram? What does it say? Yes. The purpose of Abram being blessed and God protecting him 
is so that all peoples could be blessed. So his heart is actually full of generosity, wanting to bless all peoples. He's not ethnocentric. He's not a racist. He actually cares about all peoples, which is a good name for a church. His heart is inherently to bless, but he will protect his people. Just as a father will protect his children from harm, so God will protect Abraham's line. Now, let's transition to now, present day, post Christ coming. Because we see throughout the Old Testament a glimpse of of this blessing idea. But like I said before, the greatest blessing is nearness to God. But there's a problem. Because at the fall, what was the greatest obstacle towards this nearness to God? Our sin. Our sin separated us from being able to see the, seeing God, being near him, having fellowship with him. Everything has now been torn apart and corrupted in some way, even in the biological level, even in our earth level. Everything is broken. We're separated from God. And so we need someone to bridge the gap of separation. And do you remember there was a promise in Genesis 3 that I talked about earlier that a promised one will come from Eve's line, a baby that will bring blessing and redemption to the entire world. And this baby eventually is born from Abraham's line. His name is Jesus. Jesus came to bring us back to God, to remove every barrier to keep us. And the biggest one is sin. But how did Jesus do such a thing? Would you look at Galatians 3.13 with me? Do you read this out loud and declare it, church? But Christ. What's the opposite of blessing? Curse. For us to receive the blessing of God's presence, our relationship with God to be redeemed, and for this this giant chasm to be bridged, something had to deal, be done with this curse. So what does this passage say? Is that on the cross, Jesus took our curse for us. He became a cursed one. He absorbed our sin and was treated as if he was the greatest sinner who ever lived so that we who are sinners can be treated like all we did was live like Christ. That's the great, great substitution The great exchange. Jesus on the cross is treated like you and I lived. And then we get to be treated by the Father as if we live like Christ. Jesus received the fullness of our curse so that we can receive blessing. But how can all families receive this blessing? Okay, that's what Christ did on the cross. But how do you and I and a Korean American and and others in this room, Haitian, Hispanics, anybody... receive this kind of blessing, all families. Well, look at verse 7 in Galatians 3. The real children of Abram then are those who put their faith in God. Hear that? Put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures look forward to the time when God would make the Gentiles, Gentiles or non-Jews, right in his sight because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of faith. One more verse, verse 14. Would you read this one out loud? Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham. 
So it's only people who are putting their faith in Jesus. So me, being a Korean American, have no business being the child of a Jewish ancestor named Abraham. And yet, here I am because of faith. So it doesn't matter my family background, no matter how twisted and broken it is, and no matter what I see on Ancestry.com, my father is Abraham through faith, and your father is Abraham through faith. And so any modern Jew or Muslim who claim that Abraham is their father, they are wrong, but they don't have to be wrong. They can have him as their father through faith in Jesus. Doesn't matter the ethnicity, the bloodline, you can have it. You can have this blessing. It's not for people who have the right dad. It's the people who have put their trust in the gospel and they get adopted and have a new father. It's not about people who are good enough because there's no one good enough. It's those who know they're not good enough and receive God's forgiveness. Faith in Christ is what gives you access to this family and part of this promised line with the greatest blessing and that's intimacy with God, forgiveness of sins, and that with that comes blessings forevermore as we reign on this earth. So let me bring it home now. Despite the immense darkness and brokenness of the world, God has promised to redeem all families through one line. And through faith, you and I, no matter our ethnicity or our background, get grafted, brought into this line, and we get the benefits of this blessing through faith in Jesus. But remember the purpose. Why are we blessed? To be a what? Blessing. Can you say that out loud with me? I am blessed to be a blessing. Why are you here, All People's Church, to be a blessing? You exist to know Jesus and make him known, the greatest blessing. And with that comes a lot of great things, but most centrally, it's knowing him. That's why we're here. And that's why Jesus has not yet returned, because he's giving us more time to be the blessing to the world. Why does God want to give you a different career or give you a promotion? Or why should you want that? So that you can be a blessing. We're not here to store up more treasure on earth for ourselves. You're not here to get as much blessing for yourself to let that be the end goal. I want to challenge you. Next time you pray pray for an increase of favor at work or a job or money, that make sure that it's rooted in so that I can be a blessing. And if my heart is not there, don't give me that blessing, Lord, because then I'll make it the goal. Why should you pray for a spouse? So that you can be a blessing, not so that you won't be lonely, though spouse can help loneliness. See, there's a very big difference between the ultimate purpose behind why we want something versus sub-goals. Why do you want your marriage to get better and healthy? Not so that you can have a better marriage, which is good, though but so that you guys can be a blessing. Church, this is why we exist, so that we can be a blessing. And it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your skill set, how old you are, how young you are, how talented you are, who your parents are, what kind of sins you did or did not do, or how educated you are. God wants to use you to bless all families of the earth. He wants to use you. So let's be that. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you do not call the qualified, but you qualified the called. And I pray for anyone here who's holding back obedience because they don't get it yet, would trust you that they're in capable hands, trusting, strong, loving hands. 
And Lord, if there's anyone who's resisting a certain call or mission, that you would give them the courage to trust you and take those steps. Father, I pray that you would show us how blessed we are so that we may overflow that blessing. Guard us, God, from letting blessing end with us. Let it be something that flows through us to others. And the more you bless all people's church in Lebanon, the more all families are blessed. And if that doesn't happen, don't bless us, Lord. Because we don't want to idolize blessing for blessing itself. We want to bless all families. So help shape our hearts and point it outward so that the blessing would flow outward and not live and die with us. Teach us how to do that. Give us faith for that. Thank you, Father, that you're patient when we don't do that. And would you empower us? And we just thank you for the gospel that, Jesus, you became a curse for us so that we can have the blessing of knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen.